teach upon some aspect of that incredible day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I want to encourage you to go home today and read someplace, and I've given you in the notes inside the bulletin the address and all four of the Gospels where that starts, um, the triumphal entry. They all have something to say about that, and uh, I suggest you read about that today. And, and during this Holy Week, that you read the stories of that last week of Jesus' life up to the crucifixion on Friday, and then don't forget to read about the resurrection on Sunday. Uh, I can guarantee you I'll remind you about it next Sunday, but we'll talk about the resurrection. Um, but for today and our time together, I, I just really felt like I wanted to continue on in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Last Sunday morning, the title of the message was Committed. We looked at the first two verses of chapter 12, where Paul made a very clear shift in his message, where he'd been talking for so long, 11 chapters, about the salvation that God has provided for us. He started out with the depravity of man in the first couple of chapters, and by the third chapter, he let us know that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. As he continued on, he let us know that the wages of that sin is death or eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, he told us that trying to keep the law that God gave to Moses, though that law was perfect, it was weak in this fact that you and I could not keep it. There's nobody who could keep the law. The law only came to magnify the reality that we're sinners. The law is kind of like the radar gun that the state patrolman has when you're driving by 80 instead of 70. It reveals that you have sinned. And that's what the law did. But God provided a sacrifice for our sins through Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a virgin, the second Adam, lived without sin, died on the cross, that we might be justified, just as if we had never sinned. And, and that's all takes place in those first 11 chapters. And then 9, 10, and 11, he talked about the nation of Israel and, and the remnant that God is going to redeem from them, that remnant of people who are going to also find Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. But in the way of review, just a couple of notes to help us get back into where we're going. Jesus died for us, so now we can live for him. We talked about that last week. He said, in light of everything that God has done, offer yourself a living sacrifice. Because he died for us, we can live for him. Being a Christian goes way beyond saying the sinner's prayer. Being a Christian is a call of commitment of my life Jesus. That's what it means to call him Lord. I commit my life to his lordship. He's in charge of who I am and what I am. Paul went on to exhort us to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He said, don't be conformed to the way of thinking that this world has. Do not allow the philosophy of this world system to squeeze you into its mold. Instead, he said, be brought captive to the Word of God. 
be brought captive to the Word of God. Our lives are transformed from the inside out as we put the Word of God into practice, as we obey the Word of God. We do what Jesus told us to do. We, we do the principles that He laid down for us. We are renewed from the inside by being not only hearers of the Word, but being doers of the Word. Verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 call us to commit ourselves to God. To commit ourselves to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable, logical act of worship, act of service, Paul said. In light of everything that he's done, the only logical thing to do is say, Lord, here's my life. All that I have, all that I am, all I will ever be, I surrender it to your Lordship to follow you. As we go into verse 3, Paul's going to make a, another transition right here. Not only do we commit ourselves to God, but he's telling us we need to commit ourselves to the body of Christ. We need to commit ourselves to one another. One preacher calls this the horizontal shift. Our first commitment of ourselves is upward to God, and, and then the natural outflow of our commitment to God is this 90-degree turn towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember what Jesus said when the Jewish lawyer came to him trying to trap him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, without missing a beat, said, the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ demands commitment in two directions. First, vertically toward God, and then horizontally in service to fellow members of the body of Christ. First, vertically toward God, and then horizontally in service to fellow members of the body of Christ. I'm committed to the Lord, and I'm committed to you. And everybody said? I'm committed to the Lord, I'm committed to you. The bulk of chapter 12 has to do with living out our Christian faith as believers in Jesus Christ. Chapter 12 gives to us some very practical steps to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. For context, we're going to begin reading in verses 1 and read through verse 5. I won't speak about verses 1 and 2, I don't think. Verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm going to start today in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Most of us in the room are old enough to remember Zig Ziglar. 
Now, I see a few people who probably don't remember him, but Zig Ziglar was a motivational salesman, uh, motivational speaker, traveled all over the country, uh, speaking to people, gatherings of people. Um, they brought him into churches, they brought him into sales things, and, and he was pretty famous for coming up with one-line quips that had to do with living a positive life. Um, he said this, he was the ultimate optimist. He said of himself, he was the kind of optimist who would go after Moby Dick in a rowboat and take a jar of tartar sauce on the way. That kind of optimist. In his motivational talks, in fact, you can go online and you can get the top 10 stains that Zig Ziglar had, but this is not one of the top 10, but one he said often. From time to time, he would say, we need a checkup from the neck up. We need to eliminate stinking thinking. We need a checkup from the neck up. We need to eliminate stinking thinking. That's sort of what Paul is saying in verse 3. Eliminate stinking thinking. He gives us several things that we need to think about properly. Number one, think rightly about ourselves. Think rightly about ourselves. He said, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. What he's saying is we must check our tendency to think too highly of ourselves. We must put in check that tendency to think too highly of ourselves. One translator said it, a writer said the translation of the part of verse 3 said, I say to everyone, don't be, or don't superthink yourself. Don't superthink yourself. Since the time of Adam, mankind has had this tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Pride is something that afflicts us all at some level. We see it manifest in a couple different ways. We've all met that person who's pretty impressed with themselves. They let you know how smart they are, how much they've accomplished, how rich they are or how rich they will be when they get their big break. They're people with an eye problem. And I'm not talking about this why. They start every sentence with I, I, I. I did this, I know that, I can do that. The second way that pride manifests itself appears to be just the opposite, that self-deprecating person, the one who tries to appear humble. They talk like they're a nobody, but it's really a false humility, and they're looking for somebody to tell them how wonderful they are. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, uh, famous scholar, Bible scholar, teacher, traveled around the country preaching, teaching in all kinds of different places. One of the places he went to, there was a person sent to, to meet him when he got off the train to take him to the site where he was going to speak. And uh, as he got off the train and met this guy, the man said, oh, Dr. Jones, I'm just a chimney sweep in the house of the Lord. Let me carry your suitcase. I'm a nobody, and you're a man of great gifts. Dr. 
Jones said he saw right through it and let the guy have it. I don't know what he told him, but he under Dr. Jones, he was fishing, he was, no, 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 you're really great, you're really a great person. Then this was in the same story. The way to expose someone with false humility is to agree with them. You know, I think you're right. But watch out. B, we must aim for an honest evaluation of ourselves. An honest evaluation, but to think with sober judgment. I read a statement, real humility is connected to what we are willing to remember about ourselves and ponder. Real humility is connected to what we are willing to remember about ourselves and ponder. Some of the most arrogant people are those who put themselves down in effort to appear humble. Now, Paul's not saying think poorly about yourselves, but be honest about ourselves. And when I see in the context of something along this line, let us see, an honest evaluation of myself has to be through the filter of God's grace. An honest evaluation of myself has to be through the filter of God's grace. First, I want to think about what Paul said about himself. Verse 3 starts, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. Paul understood that he was in a place of authority over people, spiritually speaking, because Jesus called him to be an apostle. Look what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. We have received grace and apostleship. He said, it was by grace that I was made an apostle. He gets to the end of his letter to the Romans in chapter 15 and verse 15 and 16. He says this, On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is a profound example of the grace of God. When we're first introduced to this man called Paul, he's introduced as Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated Christians, a man who was doing everything he could to stop the preaching that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. He was there when they stoned Stephen to death. He gave great approval, and then he got himself certified by the Sanhedrin to arrest Christians wherever he found them, to put them into prison, even to put them to death. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest people of the way, is what they were called at that point. They were called Christians yet. The people of the way, he was on their way to arrest them, to persecute them, when that light from heaven and the voice spoke, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He spoke to him from the spirit realm. I'm looking forward to the replay in heaven. I just happen to think, when we get into eternity, that we'll get to see all those highlights moments 
That's just my opinion. That's not Bible, by the way. Okay, that's just my hope. They'll be able to watch those incredible moments when God did, when He intervened or came right down into the arena where we live. Now, why Paul understood that after the fact that it was God's plan from the time he was born to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't know that when he was on the way to Damascus. Jesus stopped him in his tracks. God did not give him what he deserved. He gave him grace. He gave him what he needed more than anything else. Grace that would wipe away the guilt of his sin. Grace that would change him from a religious Pharisee to a man who loved Jesus with all his heart. He loved Jesus so much, he willingly, he willingly allowed the emperor to chop his head off because he would not renounce Jesus Christ or quit preaching the gospel. Paul knew he was saved by grace, ordained by grace, and matured by grace. Paul knew he was saved by grace, he was ordained by grace to be an apostle, and he grew in his faith by grace. Salvation by grace and grace alone is the theme we find in almost every letter that Paul wrote. Three places in Romans he acknowledges it's by the grace of God that he can speak as an apostle. Someone with God-given authority to preach and teach. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is defending his call to be an apostle and shares all the struggles he's having. And chapter 12, he begins in the third person. He said, I knew a man once, and I don't know whether he's in the Spirit or out of the Spirit, whether it was a vision or a real thing, but he was, he was taken up into the third heaven where he saw things that could not lawful to speak about. And he came back. And then he said, to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. He was, Paul knew he was saved by grace, ordained by grace, and he matured by grace. So going back to verse 3 of Romans 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to make an honest evaluation of ourselves, always remember we are saved by God's grace. You're not saved because you're such a lovely person, even though you may be. You are saved by God's grace. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That measure of faith. Now that statement has always been kind of a, a challenge to my thinking. I've heard it preached and taught, and I've probably preached it and taught it too, that God gives every man a certain amount of faith. 
And we've come to the conclusion by looking at each other that some people got this much faith and some of us got this much faith. But as I did some research and studying, there's a, a guy by the name of Cranfield who digs into the original language and all of that kind of stuff. And he came to the conclusion, and there are several scholars who agree with him, that what this is talking about is that faith that God gave to every one of us to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that we are saved by grace. When we think about who we are, we do not compare ourselves to one another. The standard of measurement is Jesus Christ. The standard is Jesus Christ. We measure ourselves against Jesus Christ. That's not our normal tendency. Our normal tendency is to say, I sure wish so-and-so was here today to hear this message because it's for them. Thank God I'm, you know, we're like, kind of like the Pharisee. I thank God I'm not as bad as that person over there. The, the measurement is, how do I measure up with the standard of Jesus' perfection? By grace, I'm justified. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. Think soberly about ourselves. We're here today because of the grace of God. The grace of God. I attribute the fact that I was born in the United States of America to the grace of God. I had no say of where I would be born or when I would be born, but God in His grace allowed me to be born into the family that I was born into and to have a, the heritage of, of a dad mom who knew Jesus Christ and served Him with all of their heart. That was the grace of God. It was the grace of God that I was raised in this church on this corner, in my opinion. You are here today no matter where you came from or how you got here, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. You see, it's the grace of God that sets the stage for us to change the way we think about ourselves. It's the grace of God that sets the stage for us to change the way we think about ourselves. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Why? Because of the amazing grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We used to sing a chorus. Actually, it's got four or five verses, but I don't know if we ever learned the verses. But we sang the chorus. My dad sang it all kinds of times. I've been changed. I've been newborn. All my life has been rearranged. What a difference it made when the Lord came and stayed in my heart. Oh yes, I've been changed. But not by anything I did. 
other than received the gift of God's grace through faith. The faith and the grace were both the gift of God. But here's the amazing thing. God's grace can change any life. God's grace can change any life. On the one hand, we had the Apostle Paul, who was a very good religious man. He said, when it came to keeping the Old Testament laws, he thought that he was faultless until he met Jesus and then discovered that there's none righteous, no, not one. But on the other side of that coin, as <clears throat> I read a story about a, a woman who's a Christian author and, and speaker. She's written 37 books. She's preached um, over 1,800 conferences in 50 states and 15 foreign countries. She had a radio program for 10 years. She was uh, one of the contributing writers to today's Christian woman. Um, her name is uh, Liz Curtis Higgs. One of her most famous books is she wrote a book about um, bad girls of the Bible. She listed 10 girls that had a ill repute until they met God or God met them. But here's a story I didn't know. I kind of feel like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Years ago, Liz, as a young person, was one of the top disc jockeys in the United States. She lived a wild life without God. That's her testimony. There was a period of time that she was the afternoon disc jockey in the same radio station that Howard Stern had the morning show. The shock guy. Um, and uh, she tells how one day Howard Stern came to Liz and said, Liz, Liz, you need to clean up your act. Now, if Howard Stern tells you you need to clean up your act, that tells you that Liz was, I mean, she was doing all kinds of drugs, alcohol, a life of promiscuity. She was living the wildlife. She was holding down her jobs. She moved to a station someplace else, and, and when she was there, there was another couple who came in to take the morning show where she was having the afternoon show. And, and this couple had experienced some success in that field and very successful and well-known. But the thing they talked about most to Liz was Jesus. They talked to Liz all the time about Jesus. Now, at the time, Liz would have been classified as a radical feminist. And her wild life and all of that, men had used and abused her in numerous ways, and she became a radical feminist. She wrote in one of her books, the most amazing thing about this couple is that they seemed to accept her, even though she was at the bottom of the pit, marijuana, speed, cocaine, alcohol, promiscuity. They treated her as a friend and not a project. They treated her as a friend and not a project. They kept inviting her to church. Finally, she said, okay, I'll go one time and one time only. It so happened that day that when 
it, it doesn't work like this. You invite somebody to church who doesn't know anything about it, and then the preacher preaches about something you don't want them to preach about. The preacher was preaching from Ephesians chapter 5, where it starts out, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Now she's angry. I told you she's a feminist, women's liberal. And she's angry. But she continues to listen, and he talked to the women for a few moments. And then he got down to that really important part of it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. She leans over to her friend and said, Now, if I could find a man like that who's willing to die for me, I'd be happy to submit to him. Her friend leans back over and said, There is a man who died for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He died for you because he loves you. She just kind of put that in her memory bank. She went back to church again and again. And in her, one of her books she wrote on the seventh Sunday that she was there. It was February the 21st on 1982. And in her book that she wrote much later, she said, I remember it like yesterday. Seventh Sunday to visit my friend's church, and by then I was singing in the choir. We ended the service that day by singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. She said, I walked from the choir loft to the baptistry to make my confession of faith. And the rest is history. 1,800 conferences, 50 states, 37 books, for the glory of God. God's grace can change anyone. The most religious and the one that Howard Stern said, you've got to clean up your act. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Somebody listening to that story about Liz could be tempted to think, I've never been a bad person. I've always tried to be a good person. But here's the fact your goodness will not save you paul said all of my goodness was as filthy rags in the sight of god i needed to be washed by the blood of jesus christ we're all saved by grace through faith faith that jesus gives to us and by grace we mature in faith by grace we mature in faith Peter ends his second letter with this exhortation in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To get rid of our stinking thinking, we must humble our hearts. To get rid of our stinking thinking, we must humble our hearts. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober means to be in your right mind, to have sound judgment. A.T. Robertson said, pride and self-conceit are treated as here is a type of insanity for Christians. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 
In the context, there's this group of people who are caught up in comparing apostles and preachers, declaring they had their favorites. Some people say, I'm a disciple of Apollo. Some say, I'm a disciple of Peter. Some say, I'm a disciple of Paul. Some say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. They wanted to sound more spiritual. Verse 7, he says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's question is, what do you have? What talent, what gift, what position, for that matter, what possession do you have that did not come to you from, the, from God himself? Now I know, I've heard men say this. I'm a self-made man and everything I have, I worked hard for it. And it's mine. I, I earned it. I earned it. Where'd you get the energy to go to work? Who gave you the job to make that income? Who gave the ability to do that job? Let's take it just a little bit further. Where did the oxygen in your lungs come from? In the book of Job, it talks about God holds my breath in his hand. You have nothing that did not come to you from the Father. Every good gift cometh down from the Father. There is no place for pride. Look at what James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Thank God he does. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. When we think about ourselves, remember Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard. When I remember that Jesus is the standard, I have no problem of thinking too highly about myself. If we truly make him the standard, we'll naturally come to the position that Jesus blesses in the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You could paraphrase that this way. How happy are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are those who understand they are spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to give God except my sin, and he can transform it, wash it away in his blood. A clear focus on Jesus is the key to thinking rightly about ourselves. Number two, not only must we think rightly about ourselves, we must think rightly about the body of Christ. We must think rightly about the body of Christ. For as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul uses this metaphor of the church being a body in several of his writings. And it's such an apt illustration that God gives to us. The person who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to gather with the church. I don't need to go to church does not understand what God desires at all. Now, there's a couple of people who could have left their leg at home before they came to church today. So I could have. But I couldn't leave my leg at home. I couldn't leave any without severing it. We need to be committed to the body. We're one body. Three things I see in this. Unity. Unity. My thinking needs to be, I am part of the body of Christ. I am part of the body of Christ. We all draw our life from Jesus. He's the vine and we're the branches. But when we talk about the body, He's the head. We get our directions from Him. He's the one who's in charge of it. We are one with Him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul takes this analogy a step further. He said, the hand on the body cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. As much as I'd like to just send half of me down to the office some days of the week and leave the other half in bed, it all has to come. Jesus' prayer for us, Jesus' prayer for us, Lord, as we are one, I and you and you and me, so they are me and and you, Lord, make them one as we are one. His prayer is that we understand that he has made us to be a unified body, a unified body, but it's a unified body full of diversity. That's letter B. Diversity. Our bodies have many members. Many members, some seen, some unseen. But all of them necessary for the body to function properly. While we live in the spirit of unity, we are as diverse as the parts of your body. 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll probably come back to this in two weeks. What if everybody was an eye? read about a youth pastor who took a football and painted a big eye on it, wrapped it up, and brought it to the, as he's teaching on the unity of the Christ, or the diversity and the unity of the body of Christ, he opened that up and said, uh, here's your new girlfriend, just an eye. How would you like to go to dinner with just an eye? You want the whole thing. We have many parts. F.F. Bruce writes this, diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. It is so in nature. It is so in grace too. Nowhere more so than in a Christian community. Here are many men and women with the most diverse kinds of parentage, environment, temperament, capacity. Not only so, but since they became Christians, they've been endowed with God with a great variety of spiritual gifts as well. Yet because and by means of that diversity, all can cooperate for the good of the whole. I thought more about this state and God's glory is revealed in creation 
by the vast diversity. How many different flowers are there? How many different trees are there? Just in our city. How many bugs? Big bugs, little bugs, crawling bugs, flying bugs, microscopic bugs that are inside your body. You look at the creation, the mountains, which means that there's valleys, the rivers, the lakes, the deserts, the rainforest. You can find them all in the same state. God created everything with diversity. God's glory is revealed in the diversity of the church. We're all different. But here's the thing, we're free to be ourselves as are others, and yet we're one body. We are free to be ourselves because God created us and he's working on us, but the other people have the same privilege. Men, women, boys, girls, tall, short, skinny, not so skinny, white, brown, black, red, young, older, 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 wealthy, middle class, financially challenged, on and on and we don't look the same. We don't all have the same function. But we all function together to give glory to God in fulfilling the great command to love one another and to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Letter C is mutuality. Mutuality. And individually members one of another. Individually members one of another. Remember 1 Corinthians 12 and like I said, we'll probably get to that in two weeks as we just come back to this thought from a springboard. But years ago, you know, Paul talks about the connectivity of our bodies. Years ago, as a morning speaker at junior high camp at Seven Falls, and by the way, there's going to be youth camps, kids camps this year. Um, and so be thinking about that. Don't need counselors. Don't need kids uh, and all those things. But... Um, I was the morning speaker there, and, and during the afternoon, they had the activities out on the field, and the particular activity, whoever's running the, the sports program that year, we were playing soccer, and it was the staff against the kids. And somehow, somebody decided I should be the goalie. And so, I'm the goalie, and by the way, did I tell you I hate soccer? But anyway, uh, I'm the goalie, and, and here comes this ball, and and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna kick it, I'm gonna kick her to the other end of the field, that's my plan. But here comes this kid running 900 miles an hour, and we hit the ball at the same time. And I've got my foot sideways to kick it, and he, anyway, he's coming, had more momentum, and it ended up spraining my ankle severely. In fact, when I got home three or four days later and went and had x-rays, it was, it was sprained on both sides. Uh, no wonder it swelled up like a balloon. But here's the thing. That ankle caused me a great deal of pain all night long. And the rest of my body stayed awake to sympathize 
with that ankle all night long. In fact, I hobbled to the room next town, Dennis Connor, and asked him to go get me some ice to put on it because it was getting bit. But my whole body stayed awake. We catch in the drift. If one of us hurts, we all hurt. If one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. God wants us to know we are one body and we need each other. We are one body and we need each other. Don't forget what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There are some who are sick, some who've died, because they did not properly discern the fact that we are the body of Christ. That's what chapter 12 follows chapter 11. He talks about the body of Christ. We are one body with one head. We are united in Christ. The thing that unites us is our faith in Jesus Christ who died to save us from our sins. July 24, 2002. Nine miners in western Pennsylvania got trapped 240 feet below the ground in a flooded mine shaft. 240 feet, that's like 20-story building only in the ground. Rescue efforts began right away, but the rescue crews knew that the odds were against them. Because of the news media, the eyes of America were on the scene, constantly waiting for an update. They were trapped for three days. Finally, they were rescued, and, and the mainstream media at that time called it a miracle because there was such a slim chance that anyone could survive in that flooded shaft. The 55-degree water threatened to kill them slowly with hypothermia. And the rescue shaft had to be drilled in just the ex exact spot, 250 feet down, and be there in time for them to be saved before the oxygen was gone. These men were gasping for air. Floodwaters rose to their chins. One of the guys by the name of Blaine Mayhew asked his boss for a pen when the water shaft kept rising in the shaft kept rising. He said, I, I want to write my wife and kids and tell them I love them. They tied themselves together so no one would float away or slip under the water, but also so all their bodies would be found if they died. They shared food from a lunch pail that floated by. After they were miraculously saved, the men said it was their decision to bond together that saved their lives. From the outset, they watched out for one another. If one man got tired, his bond to the other man kept him afloat. When one got cold, the other eight would huddle around him and warm his body. They vowed, whether they lived or died, they would do it together. What a great picture for the body of Christ. One final lesson from that mind for that day. Because even together, those men were helpless without help from above. They were hopeless without help from above. When help came, all they had to do was receive it. 
They just had to climb up aboard the rescue cylinder that lifted them up to safety. That's what Jesus does for everyone who calls on his name and said, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. God raised you from the dead. And I want to accept your forgiveness. I want to become part of your family, part of the body of Christ. Those men were in the shaft for three days while crews worked nonstop to save them. Jesus was in the grave for three days. But on the third day, he rose with power over death, over hell, so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will experience the grace we've been talking about. Have you humbled your heart before God? Have you been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit? If not, why not right now, today? Let's stand. We're going to sing a song of commitment, and then we'll pray.